0: Hello and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Micah. This lesson was presented by Mr. Lawrence Jeffrey on March 14th, 2021, during Sunday school. The lesson's title is The Corruption of the People and discusses Micah chapter 3 verses 9 through 12. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. So, we didn't finish chapter 3 last week. We were in verses 9 to 12, and we stopped at verse 9, because last week we looked at justice. Right? You're turning me up just a little bit alright <laughs> thanks Jerry yeah so last week we looked at justice oh, well, now I have that echo alright <laughs> let's uh, let's pray and then we'll read the section again hopefully finish it up and Go into four. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we always do, Lord, we give you all thanks and all praise that we come and gather as your people to worship you, Lord, to uh, adore you, to magnify you. And Lord, we know that you have called us out of uh, darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, into, into the light, Lord, and you have not left us without witness, but you have sent your Spirit to illumine your word to us, Father, and we pray that as we look into your word, that your spirit would do just that, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we might understand with our hearts, Father, that we might be molded and shaped and made more into the image of your beloved Son, and that we might know what it is that we are to do in this world, and we might know you, because ultimately that is... The goal of everything, Lord. You've given us life and life eternal, and that life eternal is, as Jesus said, knowing you and knowing the one you sent. We pray now that we would see him and see you in this passage, in this text. Right, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, last time we spoke about justice, right? Who remembers anything that we said about justice? Like, I asked the question at the very beginning, what is justice? And I'll ask that same question again to see if anybody retained anything. Go ahead, Steve. Restoring a right relationship with God. That is part of justice. Restoring a right relationship with God um, it goes beyond that and others. and others, right? Justice, in this sense, deals with our relationship with each other. It is restoring right relationships with fellow image bearers. That's the foundation of justice. Right? And you can't have the one without the other, we said last time as well. What does the Apostle say? How can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have, right? So you can't love God without loving your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without loving God in the proper sense, in the true sense of the word. right? It's not an either-or. It would be a both-and. Let's see, a little scratchy, like I said. <clears throat> so... Um, Dealing with that, we spoke about where our society is right now, how we've abandoned uh, true justice, well, we've abandoned truth altogether, haven't we? Now it has become all relative and all about power, like we said. So let's continue looking at what's being said here in our text, and hopefully we can see, uh, well, we will see more of the same, we'll see how... Nothing really changes, right? Beginning at verse 9 of Micah 3, it says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its, hev- its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, (coughs) Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So, what were they doing? They made all that is straight crooked. And they built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. What do you think that means? Building a city with blood or sin or iniquity? What are your thoughts on that? Well, in ancient times, when someone founded a city, a lot of times, like let's say at the gates of the city, They'd offer a sacrifice, right? And a lot of times that sacrifice would be a person, and they would bury that person underneath the gates there. And that person's soul was meant to protect that place, right? So this was founding or building a city on blood. That's one of the things that had happened. As a matter of fact, remember the prophecy from Joshua about Jericho, that Jericho would never be rebuilt. And if anyone did rebuild Jericho, they would build it with the blood of their children, right? Their firstborn and their last. Now, someone in Kings did go and rebuild it and at the cost of their children, their first and their last. right? And it's generally understood that that's exactly what it meant, that he put his son under the gates there. You know, he would have been sacrificed. So this is something that was actually pretty common way back when. This was not like a one-off thing, but um, it goes beyond just just that superstitious aspect as well. One of the most famous accounts of well, what's the most famous ancient city? Would you say? Go ahead. Rome, yeah. I'd say that would be the most famous ancient city. It's the eternal city. How did was Rome founded? Who remembers this story? Good. Fratricide. Fratricide that's right. Romulus and Remus, All right? Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus, the brothers who were suckled by a she-wolf, you know, in the myth. Romulus went and plowed a large circle and said, "This is my city. No one can come into it without my say so." This is one myth, anyway. There are others, but generally it's accepted that Romulus did kill his brother. And Remus, disregarding his brother's word, stepped across the line into Romulus's circle, and Romulus struck him down there and then. And the point of it was that they were very proud. The Romans were very proud of this, because their city, they said, was built on law. Right? Not even familial piety will get in the way of the law. Right? It doesn't matter if your own brother violates, you know, the law. They will be by your own hand, cut down, right? And they're very proud of this fact. But they built their city on blood. And they were judged for it, right? And the the, the, the not the irony, that's not, that's not the right word. Um, it's a kind of counterfeit, if you will, you know? Because there's only one city that is built on blood, that has, well, the true city, right? What is the true city? city of God. The city of God, right? Heavenly Jerusalem. <clears throat> and how is that city founded? The blood of Yep, the blood of a brother, right? See, the, the understanding in the terms of the counterfeit, I use Romulus and Remus because this is the easiest one to use. Romulus, struck Remus' his brother down and founded his city there, right, on the law. His own law that he made up. Christ was struck down. He took the law upon himself and was struck down for his brother. Well, there's a world's of difference between those two things, isn't there? Good, Maria. That works. Yeah, if we juxtapose those two things. uh, Yep. Is there any other thoughts about founding a city on blood? What do you you think about... Go ahead. Yeah, isn't that how Cain did it? That is exactly how Cain did it. That's exactly correct. That's how it always works. Yep, cities are founded on a brother's blood, yeah? That's what happens. But, unfortunately... uh, only one city can be founded on blood. So that means all the other cities will become heaps of ruins. <laughs> now, these are ancient times, right? You look at this, this day and age, and like, we don't do anything that barbaric, right? We don't go and sacrifice people and kill them. We do sacrifice people. We do sacrifice babies, that is true. Yeah, But we don't build cities on their bones, do we? I mean, there are rumors that there are people buried in the Brooklyn Bridge, but, you know. <laughs> but uh, but we don't do that, right? We don't build a nation on blood, do we? Well, how is America built? Modern America, anyway. Not the old America. Well, what Lincoln did was... He shed a lot of brothers' bloods, didn't he, to found a city to preserve the Union, as he said. These people were sacrificed. Any nation that started that way won't last very well. But uh, anyways, so, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now, what's interesting about the next verse here in verse 11, check this out, right? Its heads give judgments for a bribe, right? Its priests teach for a price, And it's prophets practice divination for money. What do you see there? You see prophets, priests, and kings. Yeah, you see corruption. But corruption from every aspect of the head of society, like the hierarchy of society, right? The top of society, right? Prophet, priest, and king. That's what you see there. I mean, heads at least. This wouldn't have necessarily been the king of... um, Israel, but the idea is the same. From every one of these, these three offices, right? And we say in Reformed theological terms that these three offices are the offices that Christ held, right? And remember what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be a picture of Christ, a type of Christ, right? But from these three offices, what do you get? You get. Judgment for a bribe, teaching for a price, and practicing divination for money, right? Corruption at the highest echelons of society, right? Um, Like you said, utter corruption. It's all about that um, self-fulfillment and self-aggrandizement. But what do they do? They lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? I'm sorry, I just kind of want to get through this. Section. I'm sorry. I'm not doing this very good. Sorry about that. Uh, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Uh, we've, we spoke about this pretty extensively. Is um, again, here Micah is reiterating what has come before in the chapter. These people who cry peace, etc. Um, God was once with them, but what were they doing? They were leaning on the covenant God made with Israel falsely. Right? They were they were trying to apply the blessings to themselves without the curses. Right? They were saying. No disaster is going to come upon us. God is our God, right? right? Just like in Jeremiah, they were said the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? They were saying the same things here. They were saying that God isn't a God of wrath. He's a God of love, right? You hear that today, even. And we spoke about this pretty extensively when we were dealing with the false prophets. Um, Yet yeah, we, we cannot lean on the grace of God, right, in, in the sense of we can't presume upon it. We can't presume upon God's grace. We can't go out, live a life of sin, and expect that, hey, you know what? I said a prayer, I'm good to go, right? It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that at all. We have to examine ourselves, to strive to enter uh, that rest, as it says in Hebrews, etc. Right? We have to make sure our calling and election, as Peter says. Like, these are serious matters. And I'm speaking from the individual level. It is equally serious on the church level and on the societal level. Um, A society cannot presume upon its heritage, right? We have a Christian past, and you see a lot of churches still thinking that this nation that we are in is still a Christian nation, right? You hear this a lot, unfortunately, from our brothers in, well, all over the place. Uh, I was going to single out a place, but I won't do that. That's mean. But um, regardless, we, we can't presume upon our heritage. We have to look at our current situation and repent of it, you know. Uh, that's, what, that's the problem that the Pharisees had in Jesus' day, right? They said, well, well we're all children of Abraham. Right? We can't do that. We can't fall into that same mistake. And that's what these people were doing. But they were doing it for money. They were doing it for, for uh, profit. Which is what most televangelists do. right? We've spoke about that extensively, like I said before. So let's look at the next one. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. All right. Now, one thing that's interesting about Mount Zion, right? Mount Zion is where the temple was, right? That's where um, Solomon had the temple built. And around that temple, and I believe they say it's true to this day. I've never been, so I can't say either. But if you go to Israel today, even, allegedly, uh, I didn't even look at pictures. I probably should have checked this, but... um just saying what people say. Uh, there's still woods up there, you know. There's it's, there's there's still woods that that do exist up there, and there did there were woods. Like he left it uh, forested, at least on the on the top of Mount Zion. But it was tame. It wasn't. It was cultivated, I guess you could say. It was a cultivated forest. It was it was not wild. Now. What he says here, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height, he's referring to turning it back over to nature. You know The Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The city of God, the city that God, where God chose to make His name dwell, will become a heap of ruins, and God's own house, the mountain of the house, will just become a forest again, is what he's saying. Now we spoke about this as well. Way back in chapter 1, we saw the same thing. Well, at least very similar things, right? And way back in chapter 1, verse 6, we see, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. So now God's saying he's going to do the same thing to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's going to do this because of the corruption of its leaders, how they mistreat the poor, the needy, not just the poor. Remember what Micah was dealing with. He was dealing with the people who were uh, proper citizens, the enfranchised people, and they were being... As a matter of fact, when he calls them people, when he uses that word, or men specifically, he was speaking of men in the prime of their youth, in the prime of their power, at the height of their power, you know. um, Young men with children and families, and in their in their in their strength, but these people were doing what they were stealing their inheritance from them—the thing, the very thing that God gave to them—and they were taking that. And so, because of that, God was going to wipe out all of Jerusalem, and that did happen. Right? We've seen this happen. We saw this happen. Well, first they were under. The yoke of the Assyrians, right? And then as um Bruce Watke puts it, he puts it so he's like very uh poetic in his in his flowery in his language. It's like they we called it the under the cloud of the Babylonian army. And the reason he did that is because um, Jerusalem God God here speaks about something very you know, let's just read into chapter 4. I'll show you exactly what he was talking about. We're going to go from verse 12 to chapter 4, 1 to 5. Okay, We're going to tie these two things together. This is really where I wanted to get today, um, just because I love this section. This is one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. Uh, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house, a wooded height... Right? Severe judgment. God is going to utterly annihilate his own people, or at least his own house, right? Which is his own, which means that his own people will be utterly annihilated. They will cease to be a people. Right? The thing that made them a people was God Himself. He bound them together. He unified them. Sort of how God unifies us, right? What ties us all together as Christians. The Spirit of God, right? He has united us. One to each other and one to himself, right? If God abandons us, then we cease to be a people, right? That's what he's saying when he says what he says in verse 12. So, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples, nations, shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make uh, them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right, so we go from this harsh, severe judgment about complete annihilation, and yet it shall come uh, to pass in the latter days, right? We have, this t- these ties this together, right? The mountain of the house of the Lord of wooded heights, but it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So, what's going on? Well, first, I think we should probably deal with um, the latter days issue, right? That's kind of important. When people hear the latter days now, they think the end of time, right? They think the end of time. But for these people, this wouldn't have meant the end of time. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament itself, when the New Testament talks about... um, the latter days, or uses language like that. Nowhere in the New Testament is it speaking about someplace far off in the distant future. Nowhere was it ever speaking about that. It was speaking about the end of the mosaic era, I guess we can say, and the entrance into the messianic era. And that's what's being spoken of here. Um and if you don't believe me, you can go and look that up yourself. Like read read anywhere where it talks about the latter days and it's always speaking of the days that they were living in. Always oh, good. The last days. Is that talking about the rule of What is what's that? Yeah, yep. Yeah. What was, what is the mountain of the house of the Lord, right? Well, the house of the Lord first. Let's deal with that. What's the house of the Lord? Yeah. The temple. Okay, what's the temple? All right, there we go. In the Messianic period, what is the house of the Lord? It's the church. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's a, that's a good question. Is it the rule of Christ? Yes, it is in terms of the church it's not his general rule over all creation here we're speaking specifically about his people receiving a kingdom that will not perish so um, do you know where that comes from i say things sometimes without thinking you know like well, his people receiving a kingdom that won't perish where does that come from who knows has anyone heard that before yeah daniel very good Daniel Seven. Excellent. Matter of fact, might as well read it. Just so we have an idea of what the heck we're talking about. So we could be all on the same page. Okay. Yeah. So, let's read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip around a lot in Daniel 7. Okay. So, we're gonna, I'm going to start here at uh, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came uh, up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now we're going to read the interpretation of this that was given by the angel to Daniel. So this is an inspired interpretation of this. We're going to start at, um, oh, let's go to verse 25. He shall, uh, No, that's not good. Let's go to verse 26. But the court shall sit in uh, judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. That's that little horn. Right? His dominion shall be taken away uh, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, there you go. And we can see the same thing uh, here in verse 22, moving up just a little bit, right? Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. All right, so that's where I got that language. And that is what is being referred to here in Micah chapter 4. Now, Micah 4 is virtually identical to Isaiah 2, um, if we go and we read that, I probably should have read that whole section in Daniel instead of just that one part. But you can read it yourself. And you can see that this is speaking about the latter days, the Messianic period, right? One like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. What do you think that's referring to? I know a lot of you know what that's referring to. right? One like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. When did that occur? Or did that occur in history? Or is this just, you know, Biblical imagery, symbolic language. What's going on there? He sees one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom. What? Yeah, the ascension, right? That did occur. One like the Son of Man or a Son of Man did go up to the Ancient of Days and did receive a kingdom. Right? And that happened at the ascension of Christ. What did he say to his uh, disciples? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? Right? So, he goes up, he receives his authority, and then the Spirit is poured out upon the earth. And what did he say about that Spirit that was poured out upon the earth? When he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait, what were they waiting for? Power. Yeah, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. But he says specifically, you will receive power from on high. So they went and they waited for that power. The power to do what? The power to fulfill what he commissioned them to fulfill, right? He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Well, first, he says, all authority has been given to me, and go make disciples of all the nations. Why did he say, why did he command them to make disciples of all the nations? Because they were given to him. They are under his authority, right? And by extension, now this is something that's very interesting that I don't think we think too often about, right? Right? When we read when we read that passage in Daniel, and we saw, matter of fact, I'm going to go back to it because I want to point it out. I'm going to show you a couple things about this that I find to be very interesting, and hopefully it will help you guys as well. Um, because matter of fact, oh man, I really need to make like serious notes and just stick to them because I want to walk all over the place right now. My mind is wandering. I was like, "Oh, you know what? I think I shall talk about marriage a little bit." That's that's weird, right? (laughs) I know that's that's an odd thing to say. I'll show you why. Okay, here, check this out. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so in his vision, he sees this. I saw in the night visions one like the Son of Man. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and it came up to the Ancient of Days, and then it says later. and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And yet, look at this. In, um, you know what? I'm going to read most of this interpretation as quickly as I can. No, I'm going I'm to skip some things because it's, it's quite long. And it's, so, we're, he's speaking about the Son of Man receiving, or one like the Son of Man, receiving this kingdom and this glory and all the nations serving Him. And then read, listen to what it says in the inspired interpretation of this. right In verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And again, in verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days uh, comes and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time... Uh, came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then again, later on in verse um, 26, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall not be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's interesting, isn't it? It says, the vision that he saw, he saw one like the Son of Man coming up and receiving a kingdom. And in the interpretation, he says that the people of the saints of God shall receive this kingdom. How do we reconcile those two things? How do those two things make sense? What do you think? What are your thoughts? Good. We are seated with Christ. Yeah, that is, that's part of the sense. That's very good. Yeah, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, ruling with Him. But, but how? How does that make sense? And this is why I wanted to talk about marriage. Okay, because what is the church? The, the church is the bride of Christ, right? Now, one thing that needs to be noted in the Mosaic law that's very important, that didn't exist in any other nation it's quite unique to Mosaic Law, is that the bride has full authority over the property of the husband. Unless the husband nullifies the vows of the wife, her vows stand, right? She has full authority over it. She administers the property. Uh, She administers the property. As a matter of fact, if you read Proverbs 31 about the good wife, right? The, the, the perfect woman there, that's understood to be the church. That was understood to be Israel. right? Um, and who's the one away, seated at the gates, judging, ruling? Well, wouldn't that be Jesus? Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, right? In his uh, father's throne, at the right hand of his father, ruling and reigning, and who's administering his property while he's away. That would be his bride, right? That would be his church, his wife. If there were to be that good wife, all right? That's uh, something that is unique to um, well, to Judaism, to ancient Judaism, but also the reason that we have such a high view of marriage and high view of women, and well, we should at least um, is well. When God made man, <laughs> he created him and said it's not good for him to be alone. He needs something else, right? He needs a helper fit for him. And then he made woman out of him. And Adam said, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, right? And the two halves become a whole, right? Um, I'm trying to think of how I can explain this quickly and properly. It's good kind of hard, but remember what we said about the image of God, man being made in the image of God? That deals with uh, authority, right? That deals with one being able to exercise authority over creation. God made man as his vice regent over creation to fulfill certain tasks. And the problem was Adam couldn't do that alone. Adam couldn't have done that alone, ever. He was never meant to do that alone. The only time God said his creation was not good was when he was, you know, on his own. I mean, if you think about it, unfortunately, in our present day, we think um, we think of piety as a personal uh, thing, right? Like my personal piety is me going into my prayer closet, being alone with Jesus, me reading my private devotionals, you know, whatever that would be. It's just me and Jesus. As a matter of fact. I speak to people who uh, say they're Christians who don't go to church because it's just them and Jesus, right? Unfortunately, that's not the case. And how we know that's not the case is it was literally just Adam and God, right? If that's what it was supposed to be, that's, that's ideal, right? That's the ideal situation. It's just Adam and God literally walking in the garden, speaking together. And what did God say about that? That's not good, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? No, we were created... Um, socially. We are social social creatures and, and we, the only time that we could fulfill our function as, as human beings in terms of the exercise of dominion, in terms of um, well what it means to be a man, a, a not a man, but like human, what it means to be human is to be social. Every every definition of humanity, right? If I ask you like, oh, who are you? I'm a husband. I'm a you know, whatever it's all, every single definition of yourself is relational. There's not one definition, the way that you see yourself, or anything else, or anyone else, that is not relational. right? Um, and the most fundamental, and most foundational of those relationships is the marriage relationship, obviously, because that was the first, the primary one, from which everything else springs. And that's the one that Christ uses in describing his relationship to his people right now both of these deal with rule and authority we 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 oh man i'm going to run out of time unfortunately see i just need a notes but uh god made man the head and the wife the helper right it doesn't mean that they're not uh, equally important or equal i mean you can't have a head without a body right a headless body doesn't work right <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> Well, Christ is the head, and we're the body, right? The, like, it won't work. Um, so, as, as his body, we carry out what he commands. We carry out his, his functions, his, his will, right? Just like your body carries out the will that comes from your head, right? Is very similar. And now, in, in, in the marriage relationship, it's supposed to be uh, similar. Now, an abusive relationship, where a man is the head... And he has disregard for his body right for his bride, where he doesn't love his bride as himself. if he wills uh the body to do things that are detrimental to it he'll that that he'll soon leave, you know quickly die right that's what happens. the marriage will die, and he'll become less than he ought to be unfortunately um, when when you, love your, when you love your spouse, right? when you love your bride, and you will, this is hard to explain, I'm sorry, I really do need the notes. When you love your bride, and you will, and your body carries out your, your will, right? it is beneficial for the both of you, and you can't do things. Uh, you need your body's input for that will, don't you? You don't go beyond what it's capable and, 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 and time you do, that's, that is that you're abusing your body. Right? Christ never does that. But I'm, I'm getting off topic and now speaking about marriage itself. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to show the illustration, explain the illustration of why Daniel, uh, or why God, gives him a vision of a, the Son of Man receiving this kingdom, this glory and this possession, this great possession, and then it talks about the saints of God receiving that possession. Because when Christ, as the, as, as the husband, receives the possession, so does the bride. Right? And now it's our task, as the bride, to govern his estates wisely. Right? Right? That's what the good wife does in Proverbs 31. Right? We receive the kingdom, now we need to govern, govern that kingdom well. And that's what we see here, if we go back to Micah, we're going to close with this. Um, that mountain of the house of the Lord. And we're going to talk about mountains and we're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff because it's, it, is, it is great stuff. I'll probably be in this section for a good year. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it shall come to pass in the, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that right? we said, was, was the church itself, shall be established as the highest of mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills And people's nations shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. Does that sound like the Great Commission to you? Sounds like the Great Commission to me, right? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, right? To teach the nations to obey everything that Christ commands. That was the Great Commission. That's what we see in that great messianic promise that we find there in both, we didn't read it, but we can, or you can read it yourself too. Go back to Isaiah chapter 2, which is literally virtually identical to that. There are some differences, and those differences are important. We'll talk about them when we get to them. But that's what we see in Micah 4 there, Isaiah 2, etc. Are there any comments, questions, or thoughts about this? Sorry, I sort of rambled I'm gonna, I, did you see me appear with a piece of paper? I didn't have a single note. It was dangerous. I can't do that. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so, In chapter 4, verse 1, the mountain of the house of the Lord mm-hmm. will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised, raised above the hills. For the mountain itself is Christ, and the temple is built upon it. The church is built upon the foundation of the rock. Um, that is above all the other hills. That image works. That image does work, but the, the, in this, what he's specifically talking about, and we're going to talk about this, he's, he's um, in the ancient Near East, in Egypt and Mesopotamia and the other places in the Ugaritic region. I'm sorry, I, uh, that's not helpful. In Canaan, in Babylon, in Egypt, etc., they had this understanding that... Um, There was chaos at the very beginning, right? We spoke about this extensively as well. There's this primordial chaos. And then out of this chaos, the gods came, right? And they conquered the chaos. And man came out and all this other stuff came out, right? But out of that, and what they did was when they conquered, out of that chaos came this primordial mountain, right? And the gods would build themselves a house on top of that mountain, this is the, the case in all other you know, religions here, right? um, Marduk from the Babylonians, from the Mesopotamians, the uh, um, Baal and El from the Canaanite religions, they all had a house on a mountain from which they had conquered the chaos, right? and they overlooked their dominion. And, That's why um, ancient temples, right, were ziggurats, like a stepped mountain, from which you start at the base and you can ascend up to the height and meet the god. Right? There's a picture of that primordial mountain, the mountain from which the god conquered the chaos and established order over creation, from which. He rules and exercises dominion. right? But here, what's being said, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the chief of the mountains. So what is that saying? That's saying that all those other gods will be beaten down, made low. right? That God and Christ, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established as the highest of mountains. God will exercise dominion over all. All other gods, those gods shall be accounted as nothing. And remember what those gods were. What do we say those gods were? We said those gods were fallen angels, eh? Demons, you could say, that the nations worshipped. That's what Paul says very explicitly. He says, uh, but those angels opposed God, but they were given sovereignty, they were given dominion over the nations. God himself chose Israel as his own special people, right? He reserved that nation for himself. All the other nations were given over to demons. When Satan tempted Jesus and said, uh, all these nations have been given to me, and I can give them to whomever I want, all you have to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give them to you. All right? He was, he was not lying. He had been given authority over those nations. But... Christ was going to receive authority by going, you know, when he went to the cross, and Satan was giving him a short way out, right? That's what we see there. So, regardless, th- these demons did have authority over the nations, but Christ took that authority, right? Paul speaks about Christ's dominion over the uh, powers and principalities, etc. You see that language a lot in the New Testament right we see it in colossians ephesians etc i'm 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 running long, i'm sorry i'll I'll close with, I'll close out but um that's important those those texts are important and what he's speaking about specifically is him taking god taking a sovereignty from all those gods and re, it being restored to uh himself right the, the when jesus says uh, the gospel of the kingdom, right? When he talks about the gospel of, of, of the kingdom is at hand. That's that's one of the things that he's speaking about. That the kingdom of God, the dominion and rule and reign of God is going to be established. Right? That that the authority that was given over to Satan is going to be taken. Right? That's that's an important thing. And we're gonna talk more about that next week. All right. But for now we do need to, to close. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that you have all authority, that Christ was given all authority over all the nations, Father God, even though, as the author of the Hebrews says, it doesn't look like that he has that authority. We don't see um, him subduing the nations. We know that he does. We do see him, Lord, and we do know that your word is true. And you will fulfill what you promise, Father God. And we pray that we would be a faithful spouse, a faithful bride, a faithful people. Um, that we would honor your word. When Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Father, that We would be like the church of, of Rome, um, the Roman church that Paul wrote to. That we would be marked out by obedience and faithfulness, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts and teach us and guide us Uh, as we read your word, that we would be conformed to your image, that we might go forth and do what it is that you have us to do in this world. But now, specifically, Lord, uh, you've called us together to worship, and we pray that we would worship you aright in spirit and in truth with clean hands and a pure heart, Father God, that you would be pleased with the worship that we offer today. And, Father, um, that you would remember us, Lord God, and, and, and in the state that we are in, Father. This world is corrupt. This world is wicked. We see wickedness, and it grieves us all around us, Father God. We pray, Lord, that you would remember us, and that you would um, raise us up, as, as you say, above our enemies, Father God, that we might not be uh, thrown out, the salt that has no Savior, that we might not be trampled underfoot by the feet of men, Father God, but that we might truly be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we might have an influence and an effect and a power here, Father God, that we might see, uh, well, Quorum, um, Long Island, New York, transformed and changed, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.